This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Radio.com studios in L.A. The very latest now on the coronavirus pandemic. Would you go out and expose yourself to the virus on purpose? Guessing that's a no, but not everybody feels that way. Researchers in Great Britain asking healthy and young volunteers, keywords there, healthy, young, to go out and purposefully get exposed as part of the search for a vaccine. Is this dangerous or is it fine? We'll talk about the ethics and we'll talk about the science. If a vaccine fails... Then what? Is our only hope herd immunity? L.A., not all glamour and glitz of Hollywood. Pandemic is trashing the city. Literally, there's a lot of trash. Will Disneyland ever reopen again? We'll get into the safety concerns surrounding theme parks. And the dude gets a bummer with health news. Jeff Bridges' cancer diagnosis shows a disease still out there, even though we're all focused on the virus. Let's start, though, with exposing people to COVID and why you'd want to do that. Dr. Chris Colbert, ER doctor and at the University of Illinois, Chicago, he talks to WBBM's Jim Gudis about the research. So believe it or not, this is, in fact, one of the first of its kind. In fact, it's called the Human Challenge Trial. And ideally, what is the thought behind this is that by providing or intentionally exposing healthy young individuals with COVID-19 or viruses such as that, um, you can identify a suitable dose um, that can be used to influence vaccine trials. Um, It is pushing the envelope on the topic of identifying vaccines, um, and we are yet to find the results of this. Uh, Again, there's there's tons of ethical issues, as you can imagine, in, in, in the use and the practice of this. Um, again, cautious optimism um, with this. Uh, again, it's the first of its kind. I, uh, there's not a lot of research or evidence at this point that there's a lot of great studies to even compare. And I just wish these individuals the best of success because ideally we're all looking for some means of vaccination for this virus. It's In a sense, it's an artificial infection of these patients. Does that at all make this less than what sounds ideal, the way in which they're being infected? Does that not necessarily reflect real-world conditions? And well, therefore... well, again, this, this, it is. Uh, that, that's a very good way and a, and, a, and a very honest question of reference to this topic. Um, specifically, what they're doing, it, again, they're intentionally exposing this virus to healthy individuals. And they're looking for the outcome, again, from the outcome, identifying a suitable dose that can be used for future vaccine trials. And that's, that's a huge, huge thought that the positive effects versus the negative, the positive effects will outweigh the negative effects. And that's the biggest thing is you don't know what the true negative effects will be to those individuals. And that's why there's a lot of conversation and ethical issues with this topic as well. Yeah, the fact that these are generally healthy, generally younger people, um, does that at least reduce the risk of something uh, going horribly wrong in any of these cases uh, if they are exposed, uh, considering uh, even though uh, these people tend to be the least likely to develop serious symptoms, they can develop serious symptoms. Yeah, and, and, and here's the thing. In theory, yes. In theory, yes. Um, no matter what capacity of pathology you're speaking, healthy people, healthy individuals by definition usually have better results. But again, we're talking about human beings and not poker chips at a table. Um, You're not just throwing poker chips on the table and saying, well, hey, well, if I lose this money, I lose this money. It's, It's totally different when you're dealing with specific lives and individuals and 
and you can look someone in the face and say, I don't know how this goes, but hopefully this works out. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of conversation, a lot of documentation. Coupled with that, these individuals are signing up for something they know that they're signing up for. Um, however, it's a huge risk. And um, it's my hope that the outcome is something that the community and our society can have benefit from without and as very little negative effect as possible. Dr. Chris Colbert, the ER doctor and assistant program director of emergency medicine at the UIC hospital. All right. We've been hearing a lot about herd immunity, a lot of arguments about it. Doctors and scientists, some of them say it might be the best way to get back to normal. Others definitely disagree. But how does it work exactly? Dr. Jason Diaz, assistant professor, integrated science, business, technology program at LaSalle University. He explains herd immunity to KYW's Matt Leon. Herd immunity refers to this uh, phenomenon that happens when enough individuals in a given population are immune to a given pathogen. Uh, and so, of course, the word herd comes from the image of like a herd of cows or herd of, uh, of other types of animals. And uh, the, the idea is whenever a new pathogen enters a population, everyone is naive, meaning they have not seen it before everyone's susceptible, it rips through the population uh, very quickly. But as people become immune, they're no longer able to be infected, right? And so if enough people in that population are immune, either because they've been sick or because they've gotten vaccinated, those create roadblocks so that pathogens are no longer able to spread throughout the community. And usually when we talk about herd immunity, we're really interested in what is the so-called threshold? How many people or what proportion of the population needs to be immune so that the pathogen is no longer able to spread effectively? And that threshold is going to uh, be different uh, depending on what pathogen you're talking about, a lot of other variables. But again, herd immunity is just this idea that if we get enough people immune in a given population, it will make it very difficult for a pathogen to spread. Before we talk about COVID-19, you mentioned that threshold. Give it, can you give us some context kind of off the cuff here of what some common viruses and what the threshold is for them? Sure, exactly. So I think one of the really well uh, studied um, examples is measles, right? And so we have a measles vaccine that is given to most infants. And that's because measles is highly contagious. We know that an average infection of measles, that infected child usually, will likely infect up to 12 to 16 other people before that child fully recovers from measles. And that is extremely infectious. And so when you have a virus that's that contagious, we know that we need to have an immunity rate of maybe 95 to 97% of the population to really prevent that disease from spreading. Again, that's because of just how contagious that is. Now contrast that with influenza, right? Influenza on average, when you're sick, you'll probably infect between one to two other people before you fully recover and are no longer infectious. So that's much smaller than the uh, 15, almost 15 people for measles. And so the amount of immunity you need in a population for influenza is much lower. Like we're talking as low as maybe 50 to 70%, right? Now that of course ties into it, the idea of vaccines, right? And, and, and one of the complications with vaccines is not every vaccine is gonna be 100% effective. In fact, most vaccines are not 100% effective. So one thing I just wanna make clear is there's a difference between the threshold for herd immunity and the threshold for vaccination. So since we know the flu vaccines are usually uh, nowhere near 95% effective, we actually need to vaccinate more people to kind of make up for the difference um, 
there. So even though we might only need maybe 50 to 70% immune people for influenza, uh, when it comes to vaccination, we actually need the vaccination rate to be much higher, closer to 80 to 90%. But we don't usually quite get there in, in the United States, but uh, every little bit counts and helps. Um, and uh, that kind of gives you, I think, some idea of the range of uh, immunity thresholds we might need and how vaccines add a complication to that, that calculation a little bit. So that being said, and obviously we're dealing with a novel coronavirus, so we're learning all the time, but is there a feeling of what we would have to hit a, a, a threshold for COVID-19 where we could kind of point to uh, herd immunity? Sure thing. And as you just said, you know, this is a novel virus, a novel pathogen, and we're not really going to know for sure for, for a few years yet. Um, but thinking about, um, you know, how we know the number, the threshold is somewhat related to how infectious uh, a disease is, how easily it spreads uh, and things like that. Um, I think at this point, uh, most of the uh, experts in epidemiology are agreeing that it's gonna be somewhere around 60 to 70%, um, which, uh, which actually, if even in the examples I just gave, 60 to 7% is between the 50% for influenza and the 95% for um, measles. And we know that uh, generally people with coronavirus can, on average, infect much more than two people, but much fewer than 15. So that actually is kind of like within that ballpark. So that, that seems that seems intuitively anyway, like a reasonable estimate to me, although I am not an epidemiologist, but I do obviously want to kind of see what they, what they have to say. That being said, there are, of course, uh, other scientists who have uh, different models and come up with different estimations. I think the other number that I've seen reported um, uh, by quite a few folks is closer to 40%, uh, which is much lower and uh, would would imply a much different timeline for when we might start you know, opening things up and things like that. And so figuring out what that number is, is a very... Um, a very uh, central point of debate um, in the policy uh, field because uh, it really affects when we can start opening up and which then affects uh, the economy and healthcare and things like that. And uh, and so that this is where I think a lot of the discussion around herd immunity is right now. It's like, what is the actual number that we need and how do we get there? 2020, the year is trash. We can agree. Complaints surging also about normal garbage, you know, actual trash. Rats in downtown Los Angeles. But it is also an issue around the country. There is an unwillingness to pick up trash due to coronavirus. What can be done to clean things up without exposing people? David Biederman, CEO and Executive Director of the Solid Waste Association of North America, and Estella Lopez, Executive Director of the L.A. Downtown Industrial Business Improvement District. Chris Seedens and I talked with them about the problem. Uh, Estella, go first. We have been talking about this. Uh, for far too long and not taking enough action. Our, what I represent is 500 business owners who pay to have their streets clean because that's the work that, that my organization does. So on top of the five to six tons a day that my teams take away, you still have an enormous amount of trash that's been accumulating in the last seven months. The difference is because in March, the city council deliberately voted to stop cleaning the encampments and not just cleaning, but moving the tents and disinfecting the sidewalks. That was something that they had done because, as you said, we've had tuberculosis, we've had hepatitis, we've had staph, and two years ago we had typhus around the encampments. 
And so both for the health of the people who live in those encampments as well as the general public, the city has to do something. Right now they're doing nothing. I have asked and others have asked, and we see absolutely no daylight. I don't know how long they think that this is going to go on, but on top of the disease now, we have fires. These encampments are catching fire, and the larger the encampments, the more the trash, the higher the stakes for the communities that have these sidewalk encampments. Okay, we've got David Biederman back with us. He, again, CEO and Executive Director of the Solid Waste Association of North America. David, you heard what Estelle had to say there. What can be done to help solve this problem? Well, one of the problems that we have is that many sanitation departments are only resourced for a certain amount of uh, garbage being generated. You know, we're used to having a certain amount of households and a certain amount of tons per household or tons per route. And when we have something disruptive like a pandemic, uh, it creates stress on the system, and we need to develop. We need to find more sources of funding to be able to do the job to keep our cities, including the city of Los Angeles, uh, safe and clean. To go back to what you were saying before, uh, before the line broke up, there we don't often think about how much trash we generate, right? I mean, it's a lot, especially now. If I'm getting more takeout than I used to, I'm at home more. I mean, things I used to throw away at work, if I'm at home, now my garbage bin is piling up, and so is everybody else's if they're working from home. And it just kind of changes the whole game for people who are tasked with trying to go and take control of all of it. That's exactly right. Between people being at home and eating 21 meals a week at home and the e-commerce buying that we're seeing because people are no longer going to stores and then the spring cleaning that happens starting in the spring and is extended not just through the summer but into the fall, we continue to see elevated levels of trash from the residential sector all over the country. Estella, before we, we wrap up this conversation, maybe one last question to you, and that is maybe the cooperation between a group like yours, the L.A. Downtown Industrial Business Improvement District, and the city itself, the mayor's office. Uh, have you had? Are the lines of communication open there? Do you see things being done by them? Unfortunately, no. Um, We reach out to them consistently, um, regularly. We send them videos. We send them photos. And they know exactly what's going on. Um, But they have not taken the deliberate steps that they need to take. Uh, This pandemic could go on for quite a long time. And I am very scared, I have to tell you. I am very frightened for the health of our community. Estella Lopez, David Biederman, thanks to you both. Coming up after a short break, if you are planning a trip to Disneyland, cancel it. Disney World is open, people enjoying the Magic Kingdom and Epcot Center, but if you prefer Disneyland, or you live here, where I do, you're in for what could be a long wait. California says the big theme parks can't reopen until a county moves into the state's least restrictive tier for coronavirus restrictions. Orange County is not there yet, that's where Disneyland is. So is it safe to reopen theme parks in general, though? Others are open across the country, across the world. Dr. Robert Kim Farley, professor of Epidemiology and Community Health Sciences, UCLA. He was on with me and Chris about why Disneyland and other theme parks in California have got to wait, at least for now. Yeah, I think one of the reasons is we still haven't really, in a sense, uh, gotten back to baseline in California for the transmission within California itself of COVID-19. I think when we see a situation as we're moving into uh, this from the first tier, for example, in uh, Los Angeles to, you know, ultimately to the fourth tier where we could resume capacity. And I think that is what also um, the Department of Public Health of the state is also trying to make that nuance that 
theme parks can open up when they uh, are getting to that tier four um, situation. Um, again, though, there'll be limits at 25% capacity, things like this. And this is the sorts of things they were also even doing at, you know, theme parks out there in Orlando, for example. You know, Universal Orlando is uh, making sure that, uh, you know, people are wearing face coverings, obviously, when they're in the park. They're undergoing uh, checks of temperature when they're in the park, even staggered parking within the parking garage, limiting and reducing the daily park attendance, uh, increasing cleaning and disinfection of uh, high-touch surfaces, uh, having virtual line experiences uh, so that you're not having people lined up uh, close together, contactless payments. I'm sure all of these things will also be rolled out at your big theme parks as well once we get down to these lower levels of transmission within the communities that they reside. Well, well following up, Doctor, on, on what you said about Orlando and the, the theme parks there, Disney World in Orlando, which is which is massive, of course. I think a lot of people who might be listening right now are saying, you know, if, if especially those who love going to these parks, if it can work at a place like Disney World in Florida where there have been an awful lot of COVID-19 cases there, they've had problems just as bad, if not worse than us. Why can't it work here? Well, I think one thing, too, is it's not real clear as what methods or modes of transmission are, in fact, uh, uh, currently happening in any, some of these large theme parks. Again, it's a little bit different. As you recall, back a few uh, years ago, Jonathan, we had the measles outbreak associated with uh, Disneyland. Now, again, measles was not occurring in other parts of the country. So it was very easy to identify an outbreak that occurred in Disneyland and follow you know, where it went with all the people going back to different parts of the country. In this situation, though, you have a setting where uh, there is COVID in the outlying communities, things like this. It's actually hard and difficult to be able to attribute an outbreak associated specifically with a theme park. It's only when you see, like, for example, a one-time only event that occurred, you know, in Sturgis, where they had the, you know, 500,000 people uh, coming there with the motorbikes. You know, we saw large numbers of cases coming out of that, easy to uh, identify because of the so large numbers in one time as compared to something brought out over time in a situation where it may be much harder to identify an outbreak. Dr. Roberts Kim Farley, Professor Epidemiology, Community Health Sciences at UCLA. Again, recapping the big theme parks in California, going to have to have their counties in the yellow, the least restrictive tier, in order to open back up. Jeff Bridges, one of the most well-liked actors around the dude in The Big Lebowski, right? He was recently diagnosed with lymphoma. Says the prognosis is good, but this shows cancer. You know, it hasn't gone away in the pandemic. People should still be getting checkups. Dr. Gwen Nichols, chief medical officer of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Chris and I talked to her as well about what we need to know about lymphoma. We're so focused on the virus that we may be... uh not taking care of our general health. Lymphoma oftentimes doesn't have specific symptoms. So patients can feel fatigue. Uh, they may feel um, uh, lymph nodes and glands uh, that are swollen. And, and if you have a swollen gland, and we think of them only in the neck, but actually the lymph glands are everywhere in our body, both internally and externally. So if you have a swollen nodule somewhere that isn't associated with an infection or a sore throat, it 
and it doesn't go away rapidly, that's something that needs medical attention, even during the time of COVID. Doctor, what do you say to those who are simply afraid to visit a hospital or a clinic out of fear for COVID these days? Fair to say that now is not the time for these people to be putting off other health concerns? Now is definitely not the time. We've been in the pandemic situation long enough that hospitals are prepared for taking care of patients and protecting them from getting sick. Uh, And it's much more important that if you have a symptom, you get it taken care of. We're really concerned that when the pandemic is over, we'll have a lot of cases of undiagnosed cancer that's in later stages that could have been treated more successfully if we'd found it earlier. So it's really important not to be afraid. And oftentimes, the initial visit might be able to be a televisit so the doctor can tell you, oh, that's nothing to worry about, or no, I want you to come in. Here's the way to do it safely. When there aren't things to look out for that are like right here's the siren sound, here's the signal, and Mm -hmm. you start, what do you look for? I mean, we know if we're feeling off, right? And some of the early COVID conversations were even, you know what, you could just be feeling weird and maybe you should get a COVID test. It's maybe the same to go get the telemedicine visit if you've got the fatigue, if you've got some weird weight loss going on. Weight loss, um, fevers that you don't have an explanation for, or sweats that aren't explained that you haven't been exercising, you suddenly break into a sweat. Any of these are are symptoms that are worth talking to uh, a medical professional about. Uh, It really is um, as simple as asking the right question. If you don't feel right, even if you aren't showing up with a lump or a bump that that uh, tells you you have something, it's it's worth worth it to avoid a bigger problem later. And the good news is we have incredible new treatments that are that are effective for lymphoma and for all the blood cancers. So most important is to find out you have it and get started on the right treatment. Um, to give yourself the best chance of long-term survival and cure. Yeah, early, always best. Dr. Gwen Nichols, Chief Medical Officer, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Doctor, thanks. So, we're waiting for the vaccine, all of us hoping for one soon. Moderna says its version could be ready by the end of the year if it's proven safe. Wall Street Journal says the company could get authorization from the feds for emergency use as soon as December, contingent upon successful results from a large-scale clinical trial next month. Pfizer's CEO says last week that the company can seek emergency authorization of its vaccine candidates around the third week in November under the same contingency. Fingers crossed for everyone. Thank you for listening. Stay well. Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Rate and review if you've got the time. 